because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Sitting in for Alex Epstein today, I'm Don Watkins, Director of Education at the Center for Industrial Progress, and with me is CIP's Head of Research, Stefan Henna. Hey, Stefan. Hey, Don. All right, so we're going to jump in this week with a story that the Environmental Protection Agency has proposed new rules that would ease Obama-era regulations on methane emissions that come from oil and gas businesses. And in particular, what it would do is it would get rid of requirements for the industry to install technologies that monitor and limit leaks from new wells, tanks, and pipeline networks, and that would require them to more frequently inspect for leaks. And it would also hold off legal requirements that would have forced the EPA to set rules on emissions from a bunch of pre-existing sites. And the, I mean, the basic logic of this, I think, is pretty sound, is that if you actually look at the big picture, methane emissions don't seem to be a serious problem that would warrant all of this costly regulation. The Wall Street Journal has a report on this where it points out that oil and gas production, they're making up just a mere 1.2% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, and that 1.4% of natural gas pumped from the ground, uh, only 1.4% of natural gas pumped from the ground escapes into the atmosphere. And so you have a situation where it's just not that big a component, if you, if, even if you are concerned with the impact of greenhouse gases. And then you have a situation where, to the extent that there is a problem, I mean, companies already have a pretty big incentive to emit as little as necessary. And, of course, sometimes it can be economically necessary to emit, uh, which we've talked about in this show. But as a general rule, like you don't gain anything by losing out on the you know the gas that you're trying to bring to the market so one thing i found interesting about this story is that a lot of the major oil and gas companies have come out opposing loosening these regulations and it has been observed by a number of people that i mean it's sort of a win-win for them at least in the short term because it allows them to appear green and it allows them to hurt small competitors who can't afford to comply with these kinds of regulations in many cases. And I think that's true, but I think there's another element that reveals why, even if this is a short-term smart move, long-term it's a ridiculously bad move for any oil and gas company. And that is that what inevitably has happened is the Greens have not come out and said, oh man, these oil and gas companies are so brave and courageous and green for opposing uh, Trump on this. What they do say instead is the well, here's a Washington Post headline that really summarizes it. Even the fossil fuel industry doesn't like the EPA's methane rollback. So, I mean, the basic pattern is that, like, you know, the oil and gas companies think that they're going to get credit, but they don't get credit. Instead, you just get their appeasement used to hammer away at anyone who holds out. And the, I mean, this happens all the time where you just get a pattern of appeasement that is doesn't lead to credit but does lead to using it to undercut holdouts so for instance a few years ago there was a big move to get the 
major companies to do climate reports. And once you had some companies that were required to do it and then other companies chose to do it, the main thing that happened is not that these companies that chose to do it were celebrated for really tackling the climate issue. Instead, it was just used in order to pressure all the people who were trying not to do holdouts to say, well, why aren't you doing it? Look, even uh, you know, um, Exxon's doing it and XYZ company, they're all doing it too. And this is why I would say that even if the methane rules were in your short-term interest in the sense that like, hey, you were going to benefit while your smaller competitors would not be able to function in that area, like you need to be in the premise of defending your freedom and the freedom of your industry to produce because you're not, you don't gain any strategic benefit by engaging in this kind of behavior, but you do hand ammunition to the people whose goal is to put you out of business. Stefan, I know you were paying attention to this story. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so just for a little bit of perspective here, what we are talking about is specifically the U.S. oil and gas industry. Um, and as you mentioned, the methane emissions aren't that big a deal in the overall scheme of things for greenhouse gas emissions. But even if you would... Um, successfully regulate that uh, domestically in the United States. And that would be a big chunk of the future oil and gas sector, of course, because America is on track or already um, the biggest oil and gas producer now on the planet uh, since the shale revolution, of course. But what would happen? Uh, you would probably make it more costly for oil and gas business in uh, America to comply with these rules. And you know, make some of the producers uncompetitive and get them out of the market. So what would happen then? Uh, would the world stop using fossil fuels? No, probably some Russian gas would come online or some Kuwaiti gas, gas uh, would come online um, to replace that supply. And then you would have a, a higher leakage rate, right? So it, it's sort of self-defeating in a sense to have too stringent um, regulations for, for methane leaks. In this way, there's also some talk about redundant rules. There are, of course, state rules that apply to the various uh, basins of uh, shale gas production. And yeah, so that there's also, and I can't emphasize this enough, you mentioned the economic trade off of regulations, right? So, yeah, of course, oil and gas producers have an incentive to, you know, gather as much of the methane as they can and not leak a lot because that's a valuable commodity that they can sell on the market. But sometimes um, other regulations, for example, pipeline regulations, prevent sufficient capacity to take away um, natural gas. And then it has to be flared or vented um, into the atmosphere in order to, uh, you know, not have a, have a build up and a shutdown of the production. And you can see here how many regulations are counterproductive. And the economic point is actually the most important one, because the goal cannot be, the, the primary goal cannot be to have an absolute zero leakage rate. That's not only is that technically impossible, but also it makes no sense, right? So you, you could say, well, there's a certain amount of damage you get from greenhouse gas emissions. If you believe that in the future, you know, some climate damage could be calculated towards a certain amount of, of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, 
But then you would have to counter that with, yeah, how much does it cost to actually prevent that? And the more you prevent something, um, you know, it typically escalates the cost. So the first 90% of pollution uh, prevention are relatively cheap. Then to get to 99%, it gets exponentially more expensive. And then getting from 99% to 99.9%, that's even more exponentially expensive. So, but that's finally of course, the goal of the uh, advocates of, of this kind of rule. They want to make the U.S. Uh, producers uneconomic. That's, they, they want to keep it in the ground. That's their motto. They, they want to shut it down. They, sh they want to shut the production down. They don't want reasonable regulation. And I, I think the economic uh, um, argument is the most important of all. And only the industry can really determine, like, is it worse... Um, preventing that last, you know, small amount of, of emissions from getting out in comparison to the market value of the product. And again, a lot of these regulations like pipeline regulations and so on, they are actually making things worse because they prevent uh, correct uh, market investment in the right infrastructure to maximize the value of the, of the natural gas. So Hurricane Dorian, of course, is a big issue right now in the United States. The last thing I've seen in use is that it's moving towards the coast, the east coast of Florida. And um, yeah, it's one of the strongest hurricanes actually in, in uh, recorded history, which goes, the satellite era goes back into the 1970s, so it's not a super long record, but that's uh, 185 miles per hour of maximum sustained wind speeds. And uh, it might actually spare the eastern coast of the worst because it might not make full landfall. It will probably, that's the last forecast, forecast I've seen, um, make a northward slope uh, along the eastern coast of the United States. So hopefully not too many people get... Uh, involved in that and, and nobody gets gets killed in addition to i think there are a couple of victims on the bahamas already um and to put this in perspective uh, the hurricane season this year has had a slow start um and now this one huge hurricane is actually uh making it an average maybe above average hurricane season uh so obviously this one storm uh, has gotten attention of politicians and uh, so-called climate experts who have been uh, saying, yeah, this is a dire warning about the future of climate if we continue to warm the planet by greenhouse gas emissions. And one particular tweet by uh, presidential contender Bernie Sanders on Twitter um, retweeting Bill McKibben of all people on the subject was the following. When we talk about climate crisis, this is what we mean. Our people are in danger and it's only going to get worse. We have no choice but to pass a Green New Deal. So his implication is, yeah, of course, this is this hurricane wouldn't have happened uh, without human global warming and it will get worse in the future and we need his policies uh, to prevent that in the future. So, but what actually happened to the long-term trend in hurricanes? That's the real question because we don't want to confuse, like Bernie Sanders does, climate and weather, and this is a weather event. 
So there hasn't been much of a trend over the satellite record, which, as I mentioned, goes back to the 1970s. Uh, so notice discernible upward trend in frequency or intensity. The global accumulated cyclone energy, which is a measure of the total energy that storms in one year uh, generate, also shows no discernible trends. There's a lot of volatility year on year. And over decades, there seems to be a cyclical component in the natural um, climate systems for this kind of tropical cyclone or the stronger version is then a hurricane in this. And one primary reason is that the climate didn't change that much so far and that the uh, ocean sea surface temperature, which is often referenced as a primary impact, isn't the only impacting factor. There are very strong factors. So the prevailing theory, for example, is that in a warming world where the ocean water warms and then provides more energy to this kind of storm, also creates fewer storms because the polar regions are actually warming faster than the tropics. And that means cold and warm air masses have a lower differential in temperature and that creates fewer of these storms. So the prevailing uh, theory is that in the future we might see slightly stronger storms of this type, but fewer of them. So whether that or not will create more damage on, to humans is anybody's guess. That's very difficult to predict. But yeah, so it's, it's not clear that there's any increase in, in this uh, type of storm or it's, and it's not, it's definitely speculative whether there will be more damage to humans from landfalling hurricanes in the in a warming future. Um, and as Roy Spencer uh, points out on his blog, uh, there's some proxy evidence that something like a thousand to four thousand years ago, uh, storms like this were more frequent actually from sediment records, um, which is not the same as a precise satellite record, of course. But uh, this gives us some indication about what the climate trends in storms. And this is one of the things where even the IPCC says, okay, we don't, we don't see much of a trend in here. So, of course, the politicians try to abuse that. They tried that with tornadoes and other things. But I want to go to a, to a different type of common that I've seen in the past. So there are some uh, climate scientists and other experts that have claimed that oh yeah, we can analyze this storm retroactively and say, oh yeah, the storm surge was bigger because of rising sea levels and this or that storm uh, or pattern or pathway was worse because of global warming. And I find this quite nonsensical because as I said, the, the warming world, the prevailing theory is that we would see fewer storms but slightly stronger storms. So maybe in this warming since the 1950s, we are missing out three storms, right, this season that we would otherwise would have seen. So maybe we have less damage this season because of global warming so far. I mean, it didn't, didn't change that much, but maybe that's true. We can't really tell because we have no planet B with the exact same conditions, only with no CO2 emissions from humans, obviously. So it's a, it's a nonsensical argument to, to sort of pseudo-analyze retroactively this particular um, storm. Maybe it would have taken a different pathway in a, in a world without uh, the human component of CO2, right? We, we don't really know that. So whether that's more or less damage, we can tell, and it's, it's really disingenuous to make this kind of expert analysis of, of this kind of storm. 
But one positive note I, I've, uh, I have for the audience is a tweet from Ryan Maui, who's a, a meteorolo meteorologist and hurricane expert or a storm expert. And uh, he had the following to say. The weather models have improved so much in the last 20 years. Like Floyd back in 1999, if we had the same weather models today for Dorian, then there's no way we would have any confidence in the eventual northward turn. Instead, 5 million may be evacuating. So that's a very important point because what he's saying is, oh, look, uh, if our weather models that predict the pathway of these kinds of storms would be the same as 20 years ago, we would be we would cause a false alarm and evacuate five million people right now, which we wouldn't have to evacuate. So this is like false alarms or uncertainty can create this kind of damage, right? And uh, that's a really good thing, and it's it's really good that this forecasting system is improving. And this is this is an example of the power of technology, because. Whatever the future nature of storms, whether there will be more or fewer storms, stronger or weaker storms, it doesn't really matter that much as will our technology to deal with that, to master the climate, to predict storm pathways and predict it in great detail. Because both the actual storm impact can cause damage if, if it's a surprise to you, but you can also be too cautious and falsely predict damage that doesn't actually occur and then you will have uh, defensive measures that are very costly but they don't do anything so we can prevent a lot of damage to humans in the future and particularly economic damage which ultimately also means life or death if we improve our technology and for that we need of course uh, a lot of energy and uh, freedom and certainly not bernie Sanders' green new deal yeah i want to go back to that tweet of his so that it was, you know, our people are in danger and it's only going to get worse. We have no choice but to pass a Green New Deal. And of course, anytime somebody wants to increase power or rob people of their freedom, it's some view that, hey, disaster is going to befall unless you do what I say. And like my attitude is exactly the opposite, which is like to the extent that we're worried about storms and we always have been, uh, we need as much freedom, capitalism, wealth, and energy as possible to make ourselves as safe as possible. And that what a Green New Deal would do is it would make us completely vulnerable because we would have no wealth or energy precisely because we robbed ourselves of freedom. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, no storm and no series of storms has killed as many people as socialism. So my next story is about a uh, controversy that's come up between the Trump administration and farmers. In particular, farmers who are by and large been very supportive of President Trump are now upset because Trump's EPA has been waiving something called the renewable fuel standards requirement for a lot of small refineries. And the farmers say that this is really depressed corn prices which is not good for their business, obviously. So uh, Renewable Fuel Standard, it was created, uh, I think, in 2007. I might have the exact year wrong. But the basic idea was that we're going to force the, our, the U.S. fuel supply to use a certain amount of corn ethanol. Uh, and th there's also a few other so-called renewable fuels that are 
on that list to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And at the time, one of the other arguments was to reduce our reliance on foreign oil, although that's obviously become much less of a concern because, you know, just a year or two after this came up, we began really in earnest the shale revolution. But this but this renewable fuel standard that's forcing us to use ethanol has become the kind of like lifeblood of the corn farming industry. About 40% of all U.S. corn is tied to growing ethanol production. And so you can see like there's a big constituency here who is really invested in the re renewable fuel standard, which is in effect, another way to think about it is it's just it's something it's something similar in you know uh an ethanol of what we do in order to support uh renewable electricity and you know it's just a welfare program for energy that cannot win on a free market and the problem though is even though we have this renewable fuel standard since trump took office the epa has issued 85 exemptions on oil refineries and saying that they don't have to blend ethanol into their fuel. You know, the idea is that if they did have to do this, like this is very costly and it would have put them out of business. And just the, the farmer's argument is not clearly true that this has actually hurt them because one of the things that's gone on is most refineries are not selling fuels that are pump ready. Like it's not like a refinery's turning out something that can you know, just be sent directly down to the gas station. Um, what they're generally doing is kind of selling it wholesale and it and it's almost always then blended with ethanol before it reaches the end user. And the economists that I've seen have said that, yeah, corn prices are low, but it's really just because we've seen an increasing supply of corn, not reduced demand from these refineries. Um, but whatever the case, uh, Trump has indicated that his solution is going to be even more corporate welfare for the farmers. So he had this tweet uh, a few days ago. The farmers are going to be so happy when they see what we are doing for ethanol. Um, it will be a giant package. Get ready. At the same time, I was able to save the small refineries from certain closing. Great for all. And I mean, this is just, you know, you... In, in, Whenever you have a system of pressure group warfare where people are getting these special favors from government instead of equal protection of their freedom, then it's just everybody is vying for their favor and then everybody is at each other's, like everybody is at odds with other people in the economy. So in a normal economy, like, you know, there's no inherent conflict between refiners and corn farmers, but when they can vie for political favors, than there is. And the and so what you really want is you want the government not to be in the position of picking winners and losers. But I, I mean, what I kind of find, you know, darkly amusing is that Trump's solution is basically it sounds like, well, he, I'm just going to make everybody a winner. The government's going to force refineries to use ethanol, except if that'll be too painful for them. And then we won't require them to do it. And if that makes things too painful for the corn farmers, well, we'll just create a new handout for them. And the one thing that's left out in all of these considerations is what about the public at large that has to pay for all of this in terms of higher prices and higher taxes? And it's, well, you're not part of a pressure group, so you don't get any consideration 
politically. Stefan, any thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting when when both sides actually uh, get into these economic arguments about, you know, we'll just boost this part of the economy and then we'll boost that part of the economy and then we'll pressure the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates to boost the economy again. It's just everyone will lose in the end and big time and people will just look at, oh, can I get the party in charge to, you know, get my get my favorite policy passed that will um, you know force others to pay for my stuff and that the ethanol uh, mandate uh, it's somewhat complicated but it's in a way it's quite simple it's just forcing the refining industry to use an input that they don't want to use right and and that's not sort of demanded on a free market and we often see this um kind of argument oh yeah this is this is just a market result and, and this is um, what people want and so it, most of these regulations uh, are hidden and you don't really know what kind of product you're you're buying and what uh, kind of impact regulations had on it and uh, yeah I, I just I mean if ethanol is really that great a fuel you can market it as ethanol and people have proposed that um, I don't. I don't think it's that good. I, good. I. I don't think it could survive in a really open and free market where people can pick and choose what what they really want. And uh, yeah, it's not. It's not a good thing, even if the farmers win out. But then everyone will lose, including the farmers ultimately. And I. I don't think this ethanol mandate has just like the re- renewable. Um, portfolio standards that demand solar and wind on the power grid to a certain degree. All of these policies are just forcing things into a market that don't really belong and wouldn't get there in a free system. So I don't, I think this is totally illegitimate. So uh, I've been seeing a recent story about a study conducted in the German city Stuttgart. Um, by the local utility and they wanted to find out whether owners of battery electric vehicles would accept a slower or delayed overnight charge of their vehicles uh, compared to a quick charging. And that sounded interesting to me because the trends uh, to the credit of Tesla and other manufacturers is to reduce the time of charging for electric vehicles. Because that's one of the big annoying thing with battery electric vehicles is that you uh, not only do they have a range issue most of the time because the battery is quite heavy. So the smaller the battery, of course, uh, the lower your mileage is. Um, And then you have to recharge the battery usually over hours and with really good equipment, you can maybe get a half charge in half an hour or something like that. And, but the trend is to try and minimize that downtime because that's that's a big disadvantage compared to a combustion engine that can just refuel within minutes. Um, so I found this interesting. So why would utilities want EVs to charge slowly instead of quickly? And why would they con- want to control the charging periods? And this is one of the issues that we've been talking before when talking about battery electric vehicles. And that is that these 
uh, additional power demand is putting stress on the whole system, on the power grid, right? So you're integrating the entire energy content that is right now in gasoline and diesel fuels in liquid fuel systems that you get on the gas station that will turn this entire energy content on the power grid. And what you need then is, of course, a lot more power generation capacity and also a better distribution system that can take uh, all of this energy and distribute it to where it's needed. And so, and that's of course a big problem because a lot of people will have to use their vehicles at the same time. So we know it as rush hour, right? So you need your vehicle ready uh, at the same time, millions of people maybe in a big metropolitan area. And then everyone wants uh, to have their uh, electric vehicle charged at the same time. If you scale this up to millions of people, you will need many, many times over the uh, electric power generation capacity. That's a big problem. And so this has been a very small study. There's another one in Norway. I think uh, in the German study, there are only 10 participants in a relatively rich neighborhood. So it, it, I don't want to derive too much from it, but it shows that utilities recognize a problem. And so I've been thinking, um, what's the issue here? And the issue I think is that we are working in a framework of discussion where the government is again, the central planner picking and choosing certain technologies. So the government certainly wants battery electric vehicles on the roads instead of internal combustion engine vehicles or other technologies. And I think this is a particularly bad choice. Um, so as I explained, the battery charging competes with the other grid users. Um, so we use our electric power grid for our home appliances in the residential areas. We also need it for industry, for manufacturing and so on. So there's the whole system that now gets disrupted if we were even able to uh, scale up the use of battery electric vehicles. And again, shift this entire energy content from gasoline and diesel right now into the power grid. That's a huge issue. Then just scaling up the manufacturing of batteries is a big challenge, right? So we've talked about like uh, electric vehicles have something like 1% of 3% maybe of market shares, depending on the economy. Um, and we are adding more and more uh, internal combustion engine uh, uh, vehicles compared to battery electric vehicles. But even if we could add that many battery electric vehicles from consumer choice, uh, producing that many, much battery capacity would be a problem. And then, of course, the government also wants solar and wind uh, to feed the power into the batteries. And that, again, creates a need for even more batteries uh, at a utility scale. So we will have to multiply many times over the battery production and manufacturing capacity. Uh, that's a big, that makes it even more challenging. And... Um, so this is, in my view, unnecessarily difficult and expensive. And the charging during peak hours will drive cost even more because the problem here is you will have to create a lot of peak power generation capacity that stands idle during other times. So particularly during the night where you don't need a lot of power. So you already see that... Um, 
in the conventional system, there are pika plants uh, and baseload plants. So the baseload plants produce a lot of kilowatt hours on a constant basis, very cheaply. And then the pika plants come in when there's a peak demand, like a scorching hot uh, summer day in Texas, where a lot of air conditioning comes online. And then you need uh, some extra juice and you, you buy this very expensively. Uh, and you will have this problem exacerbated many times over with peak charging times for electric vehicles, once many millions of them are on the roads, of course. Um, and this is, this is a general problem with the electrify everything to accommodate the solar and wind plan, because the only reason why we need to focus on electric, or the government wants to focus on electricity, uh, is because solar and wind only produce electricity. They don't produce gasoline, they don't produce any kind of other fuel, they produce electricity, and then the government thinks, oh yeah, we want everything to be electrified. The transportation sector, heating should be electrified, and so on and so forth. So this is putting a lot of stress on the, on the very expensive power grid infrastructure. And this is sort of the dumbest choice of, of um, something. So I was thinking, yeah, if, if we wouldn't have the government centrally planning this, uh, what would a private entrepreneur do or look for um, if he wants to optimize and provide an actually better system, right? With, with, you know, getting a better transport service, getting from A to B more efficiently, cheaper, more quickly, and so on. How would they create a better solution? And so my speculation would be they would do some kind of liquid fuel because exactly because that's not electricity, that's not putting stress on the power grid and not driving up the cost in there. Um, and so maybe synthesize some kind of, of fuel uh, like ammonia or hydrogen or something like that, right? Or maybe liquid natural gas would be a good solution. But probably not battery electric vehicles. So I think that's a niche product where because the government chooses this for ideological reasons because they want solar and wind, they want to electrify everything and then electric cars look attractive even if they are not really competitive or um, economically viable. So, but that, that sort of uh, solution seeking by a private entrepreneur would, is, uh, would have the goal of creating a better product and ultimately would lead to yeah, more traveling, more transport of goods and so on. It would make the world better, more convenient and doing more. And I think this this is runs counter to the actual green ideal behind government policies, which is minimize the footprint. Okay, if you want to minimize the footprint, you don't want transport to become cheaper. You don't want to uh, gasoline and diesel to be replaced by something superior that's you know, actually making things cheaper. You're not looking for better solutions. You're looking for solutions that minimize the footprint. And ultimately, that will probably lead to something like, yeah, transporting less, traveling less, doing less, getting less mileage out of the car and having fewer cars. So I think there's a, there's a very real reason why the government and these policies that are advocated systematically lead to worse solutions that can't really scale and can't really work and make things ultimately more expensive. And that is ideas matter and horrible ideas like the minimizing the footprint framework matter as well. Uh, so before we wrap up, there's one story I just want to mention briefly. I've been meaning to talk about it for a little while, but uh, we just have not had time. But 
the a few weeks back coalition a coalition rather of 29 states and cities recently sued to block the Trump administration from easing restrictions on coal burning power plants through its repeal of the clean power plan and its replacement with the affordable clean energy rule. Now just some brief background the the Clean Air Act directs the EPA to implement the quote best system of emissions reduction unquote for pollutants and the agency has traditionally applied this to individual power plants so hey Mr. Power Plant like are you using the best system to reduce emissions here but the Obama EPA went further and it required states to completely change their electric grids by replacing all coal and eventually natural gas with wind and solar and the Supreme Court in 2016 um, basically stopped it as it was being implemented because it was saying that the EPA did not have that authority. And you know the result was that federal CO2 emission standards for power plants didn't exist, um, though you know, there was just a lot of uncertainty what was going to happen. And then last month, Trump's EPA issued new regulations, the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, that required the states to implement the best system of emissions reduction by making on-site efficiency improvements to coal plants. So in other words, whereas the clean power plan was saying, oh, we're going to reduce emissions by shutting down a bunch of coal, and this is saying that, no, we're, the affordable clean energy rule is saying, no, we're going to try to make every plant more efficient and uh, reduce its emissions. And this court challenge led by New York's attorney general um, argued that the Trump administration's EPA had no basis for weakening the Obama-era regulation. And so uh, getting rid of the Trump rule, however, wouldn't reinstate the clean power plan. It would basically just go back to having this regulatory va vacuum. And this has led some people, even on the left, to warn that suing the Trump administration could lead to court cases that go in a not particularly helpful direction from them. More specifically, it could lead uh, the conservative majority in the Supreme Court to revisit this case, Massachusetts versus EPA, which is what initially forced EPA to regulate CO2 as a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. And so I think actually these lawsuits are positive. Like worst case, they overturn the affordable clean energy rule, which was a marginal improvement of the clean power plan, uh, but you know it was not a game changer in terms of rolling back regulations. Um, and the best case is that we stop forcing the EPA to restrict CO two. Stefan, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I'm just um, scared that we need to resort to actual court cases um, when this regulatory thing is going on. Um, you don't really know what will happen in court, what, what will be ordered and what will be regulated and how it will be interpreted. But um, it's just these regulations are often so open-ended and can be interpreted to mean uh, a lot of different things. We have seen this with the Endangered Species Act and with this um, clean power plan as well. So what's the best uh, available technology, right? So the EPA will make up some discretionary rules. And so it, it's, it just seems that we are so far away from a real 
rule of law when you where you can just where you know how you're regulated, what you have to comply with. So uh, I think there was one manual. Um, I don't I don't remember which specific rule this was for, but the engineers called it the puzzle book because you had to find out in a very complex process what you actually have to do with your piece of equipment and how you have to optimize it when you're in compliance, when you're not. And so this is really, this is very complex. I don't know what will happen in court. I think it's difficult to predict. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's it's a case that uh, this lawsuit, these lawsuits will overturn it, but um, it's very scary that you're in this kind of uh, uncertainty a limbo in the courts. I, I don't. I don't trust that very much. All right, that's it for today. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me, Don Watkins, at don at industrialprogress.net. If you have any interest in a speech by Alex or anyone else from our team, we've got a growing lineup of great speakers at different price points. So you can email me at don at industrialprogress.net. And if you want help with any messaging for your organization and would like to discuss how we might be able to help you with that, contact me as well. Best way to support the program, as always, is subscribe to our newsletter at alexepsteinlist.com. And with that, hope everybody enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next week with some more great topics. Until then, this is Don Watkins with Stefan Henna, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.